Okay, well, I wanted to welcome everybody to our Logos um, Bible study tonight. Ted will be um, teaching and walking us through First Timothy 2 uh, later today. It's just such a great joy that we can come together as um, the family of God, and especially just as a local church, um, especially, I guess, especially in contrast to, you know, what's happening in this world, in our country, our nation, that's so divided. Um, but yet it's times like these where we can not only know and be comforted by the peace that we have in God uh, and in his word, his salvation, really founded upon our peace with our Savior, but that we can share that together and hopefully that that can be our testimony to this watching world. Um, but before we get started, I uh, just wanted to mention to people as they continue to join us that, um, you know, it would be a blessing if we can keep our um, cameras on. So in the absence of physical presence, we can just be able to see each other virtually. Um, and also just um, a, a reminder that this session is being recorded. So um, just be aware of that as well. Um, but let's open up in prayer. And um, Stephen, can I ask you to open first and then I'll pray? Yep. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are um, a sovereign God in full control. Um, and as you've uh, instructed us uh, in your word um, to pray for, for all men, um, including those in authority, um, Lord, we find that uh, very appropriate this week um, as we uh, watch and observe uh, the elections and everything going on. Um, though it's tempting uh, to join uh, the world in, um, in in panic and arguments and um, and anxiety, uh, Father, we take comfort knowing uh, that we worship a, a sovereign King, uh, one who whose reign uh, is not threatened uh, and is secure for eternity. Um, we thank you that you are a God that um, works through um, and by prayer, uh, that you uh, listen closely um, to the prayers of, uh, um, of your children. And uh, we, we thank you, Father, that uh, we worship a compassionate God, uh, one that um, has love for all men and desires all men to be saved. Uh, we pray that this time that we have together would be a fruitful time, uh, one of sanctification, um, help us to Help us to come um, and listen with hearts that are uh, open, moldable, and teachable to your word. I think, Teddy, you're praying. Maybe you're on mute. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Thanks, dear Father God. We do thank you that all of our hopes and our securities rest not in ourselves or in our works, um, but they rest in the finished work of Christ. We thank you that, uh, that in him and in his body and the shed blood, that the wrath of God against our sin has been satisfied and that we live in and we enjoy um, just the grace of God through the gospel alone. We thank you that Christ continues to intercede for us and that we can have this relationship and be connected to God the Father um, because of Christ and, and his work on the cross. And we thank you that as well that you call us to be ministers and ambassadors of the gospel may our heart reflect your own to not only see you and to uh, be glorified and honored um, and for people to come to know you and be connected to christ but may that be our joy and ambition as well we pray for our church that you will continue to grow 
us and um, that we would not be lazy or thinking that this world is neutral towards Christians. But may we remember just as Christ himself was um, wounded and assaulted, um, that he is our master, um, sets the way and example for us as well. May we not be surprised. Um, may we be faithful and may we take joy that, our, that Jesus is king and that we rest in his peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, again, we'll be going back to 1 Timothy 2 um, this week. So to get started, um, I'm going to ask somebody to read the passage for us. So Edward, I see you on my screen. Can you turn to 1 Timothy 2 and read verses 1 through 15 for us? Teddy. Yes. Oh, sorry, Edward Wong, sorry. Sorry, I didn't realize there's multiple Edwards. That's my fault. Uh, no worries. Uh, so 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, thanks, Edward. And then we're also going to have some sharing from the discipleship groups. So um, from Tim and Edwin's group, Paul, can you share with us uh, what you learned this week? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, yeah, just double checking. Um, yeah, with the, with the cross-references, uh, there was definitely a lot and I'm afraid there may be a little bit too much for me to go through uh, in its entirety just in these few moments that I have. Um, but uh, sharing some of the takeaways that we had and uh, some of the uh, connections with the uh, passage in First Timothy, um, I think one of the things that uh, our group uh, looked at was uh, remembering the context of First uh, Timothy that Paul is writing uh, to the church in Ephesus that there appears to be some uh, some deviation and division away from uh, 
what what is called for. I think if I can find it right here. Uh, there was a division in uh, doctrine or teaching false doctrine, uh, verse four, chapter one. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification. Now, this is the, now the purpose of this commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. And then I think at the end of chapter one, he points out, uh, I believe, verse nineteen: having faith and, a, and good conscience, which some have, uh, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck of Hume or Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Um, it's followed up uh, immediately in the beginning of chapter two uh, with a, uh, a call to unity that uh, therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayer, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Um, I think looking at some of the cross-references, uh, it's important to know what the church is being unified. Uh, what, what is that reason? I think looking at um, one of the cross-references here, I believe this was 1 Kings 8. Uh, Solomon is talking about the uh, praying over the completion of the temple. Um, and in verse 33, uh, he's uh, talking about uh, Israel. When your people Israel are defeated when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. And when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Uh, hopping down really quickly to uh, verse 41, concerning uh, a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from far country for your name's sake, for they will hear your great name and wretched arm when he comes and prays towards this temple here in heaven, your dwelling place, and according to all uh, for which the foreigner calls to you. Um, so I think it's important uh, to recognize that um, these people, both uh, the uh, nation of Israel and also the foreigner to Israel, um, are going to uh, turn away from the Lord and they're going to fall into sin. But uh, being brought back to uh, this place and being brought back closer to the Lord, uh, turning away from that sin and, and returning to him, uh, he's saying, uh, may the Lord uh, forgive the sin of your people, Israel. And that is also um, uh, the, comp the, the complimentary piece to that is verse 41 when he's also speaking to the foreigner. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, there's just I mean, so much here. I'm, I'm trying to quickly race through this. Um, but okay, maybe you can um, try include your thoughts so that Natalia can have time to share too. Yeah, I, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I think uh, this, the reason why we're all here is not because we're unified because we, we wanna be nice to each other. We wanna have, you know, we wanna be friendly. We're, we're supposed to be unified because the one thing that brings us all together, the one thing that uh, we're all supposed to agree on is uh, who Christ is and, and who the Lord is. Um, this uh, potential deviation from uh, introducing alternate doctrine or other things that will simply distract us away from that unifying truth um, 
it, it, there is no place for that here. Um, again, there's so many other cross-references that I could go through, but I'm, I'm gonna try to wrap it up right there. Uh, thanks, Paul. Yes, there's a, there's a lot of those cross-references that we gave you all, and hopefully um, for all of us, that's encouraging. And yeah, First Kings is definitely, you know, the dedication of Solomon's temple, and it's a very clear description of what that place of worship, you know, God's presence is supposed to be. So hopefully we saw that in the passage. All right, Natalia, can you share with us maybe one point from what you learned this week, the cross-references? Um, okay, um, well, I was gonna go through all of them, but <laughs> um, I guess I could just pick one. Um, but yeah, we see God's desire for all men to be saved from our passage in First Timothy in the New Testament. And also since the beginning in the Old Testament in Genesis throughout time with um, just believers like Abraham, David, Solomon, and also Jesus interceding for the lost. Um, but if I were to pick one, um, I guess in Luke, uh, you know how um, the context is Jesus tells three parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And they're really one story of um, heaven's reaction to when the lost are found, because in chapter 14, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the Pharisees weren't hearing, um, but it was the tax collectors and sinners who were there coming for the very purpose of hearing um, what he had to say. And then the main idea is that God's um, heart is for the lost. He takes initiative to seek and save the lost, even if there's just one. Um, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Um, and the connection is that, yeah, Jesus, you know, was a man of sorrows, but he also knew joy. He knew joy even going to the cross because in Hebrews 12, 2, he's, it says that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him and the joy of recovering the lost, um, which is heaven's joy, um, it comes in the recovering of lost sinners. Um, so just like in First Timothy, where God's heart is to, um, for all men to be saved. Um, and then an encouragement, something I learned is that I realized that I don't pray for my kids the way I should. Um, yes, I discipline them in the way of the Lord and teach them the word, but knowledge and laws alone won't save them. Um, I need to be praying more that God would put his spirit within them, that God would open their hearts to believe the gospel and that he would free them from the slavery of sin, grant them repentance and that God would remove um, Satan's blinding influence. I need to also be praying for a deeper, more significant relationship with them so that I can speak truth um, that they may hear. All right. Thank you both, Paul and Natalia, for sharing with us what you learned in your groups um, this last week. Um, now we get to look forward to Ted um, teaching from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, and the cross-references. All right, Ted. All right. Thank you. Um, thanks, Teddy. And uh, hope you guys are all doing well this evening. And uh, thank you, Stephen, for um, just helping me with the slides here. So... Um, you know, I trust that uh, all of you have been encouraged, um, blessed through our study of First Timothy as much as I have. You know, we've had an opportunity to hear it preached from the pulpit, taught um, during Lagos, and obviously uh, applied in our discipleship groups. And um, yeah, that's, you know, I, um, 
yeah, thankful that uh, we have the opportunity to really uh, delve deep into God's word and allow it to um, bear fruit in our lives. And uh, this evening, we're going to be fo- focusing in on the first eight verses of uh, the second chapter of First Timothy. And as uh, Stephen mentioned earlier, um, you know, this is a very applicable passage in light of uh, the ongoing elections uh, that you all are aware of. And, you know, seriously, praise God, right, that regardless of what the outcome of these elections are, you know, what, whoever becomes our next president, uh, whether we're excited about it, whether we're disappointed by it, whatever the aftermath is, you know, it really be as a church or to respond, right? Specifically, you know, through prayer. And um, tonight we get to consider God's heart and mission for our church, you know, especially in this time and in this place. And so um, why don't we just uh, just go ahead and get started. And um, if I go to the, we go to the first slide, just want to set the context uh, for our passage for tonight, you know, just uh, as a way of review. First uh, Timothy uh, chapter one um, starts out with uh, the apostolic greeting, right? In the first two verses, uh, this is, you know, really focusing on how Christ cares about those who lead his church. And the apostle Paul, uh, who was appointed by God to be an apostle, is writing here to Timothy, uh, who is his true child in the faith as he is pastoring uh, this church in Ephesus in the midst of, you know, very turbulent times, right? Not dissimilar to ours. And, um, you know, he's exhorting him uh, and uh, he's uh, challenging him, calling him to really stay true to the calling that he has received. And in the scope of redemptive history, uh, we see this passing of the baton from the apostles, right? Who, whom um, the Apostle Paul represented, uh, who was a direct witness of Christ and his ministry. And this passing of baton from the apostles to the pastors and the elders uh, who are to lead the church of Christ. And this would be the case until um, Christ returns. And in verse three to four, uh, we move to the apostolic charge. And here, uh, the focus is on how Christ cares about what is taught in his church, right? And here, if you recall, Paul in verse 3 charges Timothy to remain in Ephesus for a very specific reason. And that is to charge certain persons who had come into the church not to teach anything that deviates from the true gospel and the sound doctrine of his word. And so... Um, here we see that Christ really cares uh, not about how, not simply about how the church functions, but uh, especially what is taught in his church. Um, and uh, in verses 5 through 11, which is the next portion, uh, we see the apostolic problem, uh, how Christ cares about how we handle his word. And what was going on in Ephesus uh, at that time at the church is. Uh, you know, is similar to what is going on in churches today, right? Where false teachers have come in, they were mishandling, uh, they were distorting, they were perverting the word of God. And in so doing, they were leading uh, many people away from the truth. And so we see that's the problem that uh, was going on at the time in Ephesus. And this is what 
prompted Paul to address Timothy, uh, uh, this particular problem that was going on with regards to false teaching and false teachers. And then in verses uh, 12 through 20, um, you know, Paul provides the apostolic remedy, uh, how Christ cares for the church with his gospel. And we learned uh, that this section, particularly verses 12 through 17, is really the key passage of all of 1 Timothy, right? And what do we see in those verses? Uh, we see really the true gospel of Jesus Christ that the apostle Paul had embraced. And this is uh, in context of these false teachers who were uh, proclaiming and, and spreading a false gospel within this church. In these verses, we see um, what the apostle Paul first contributed to his salvation. Right? He writes, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And so he would agree with what Jonathan Edwards says, which is that, you know, we essentially contribute nothing to our own salvation except for our sins that made it necessary. Um, but not only do we see what the Apostle Paul contributed, but also we see what he received through the gospel, right? Uh, he says, I was given strength. I received grace. I received mercy. I received faith. And I received love, right? And in so doing, the Apostle Paul presents himself as the preeminent example of God's perfect work in the lives of those whom he saves through the gospel. And in light of this true gospel that he had embraced, the Apostle Paul charges Timothy in verses 19 through 20 to wage the good warfare and to reject anything or anyone who stands in opposition to the gospel of grace. And this included carrying out church discipline of those who had made shipwreck of their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander being among them, as they had strayed away from the faith and from a good conscience. And this takes us to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. And we transition from the apostolic remedy to the apostolic worship, right? Apostolic worship. And that's what the second chapter of 1 Timothy is about, how Christ cares about how we as a church worship, right? This flows out of the gospel that we just talked about, Christ's perfect work in our lives. And what the Apostle Paul applied first to his own life in verses 12 through 17 of 1 Timothy 1, he now applies to the church here in chapter 2. And as we consider our text for tonight, there are essentially two questions we need to ask ourselves at the end of the day. Right? First, are our lives characterized by gospel worship? Are our lives characterized by gospel worship? But also secondly, are we as a church committed to and characterized by gospel worship? Now, what do I mean by that? Right? I would propose to you that there are essentially two main views of worship in the church. There's a man-centered view, and then there's true gospel worship. The man-centered view would say that we are the ones who define worship. We decide who leads. Uh, we decide what we pray for, what the roles of men and women are, what the order of worship ought to be, 
how we do evangelism and how we do outreach, we come up with all of that. Right? It's based on our own effort. It's based on our own ideas. Uh, it's based on our own strategies and our own goals. Um, in contrast to that, in gospel worship, Christ is the one who dictates to his church how we are to worship. And it's according to his word, right? And just like it's his perfect word, work, sorry, in our lives, it's his perfect work in the church that brings about truth-driven, spirit-filled worship that is ultimately good and pleasing to him. Right? And we have to remember that the church belongs to Christ. He's the one uh, who instituted it. He's the one uh, who uh, built it. Uh, and he cares deeply for it. And Christ, and not the Pope, not the elders or the, or the pastors of our church, is the one who is the head. And as we submit ourselves to his lordship and to his agenda, he promises to build his church. And so we're simply to follow his blueprint for worship, which is explicitly given to us in his word. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, a section that talks about worship gathering, we see that it begins with prayer and specifically evangelistic or gospel-centered prayer. So if I can have the next slide. So how would we break up 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, all right? Um, this is how we apply what I would, what's called uh, in hermeneutics, uh, the sandwich principle, right? And what's shown up on the screen, you can see is a spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, one of Becky and my favorites. And what we see is two buns, one on the top, one on the bottom, and then uh, the spicy chicken in the middle, right? And if we use that illustration for how we would break up this passage, uh, we see at the beginning, as well as at the end of this passage, the call to evangelistic prayer, right? That represents the top bun and the bottom bun, of the sandwich. And in between is the meat. And that's the theological basis or the grounds for evangelistic prayer in verses three through seven. Another way to put it is, you know, we see the doctrine that's sandwiched in between the command or application to pray. So let's just delve into that a little further. If we go to the next slide. So call to evangelistic prayer. And what is the first item of the order of worship that the apostle Paul calls for? Right. It says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, commentators debate whether Paul is talking about first in sequence or first in priority when he writes, first of all, then, right? And if you think about it, you know, I don't know if it really has to be one or the other. And most likely Paul places prayer as first in sequence because it's also considered first in importance. And in verse one, Paul lists four different words to describe the kind of prayer the church is to prioritize. And they're not just synonyms. 
okay? And we'll just quickly just go through those. First, supplications. Um, it refers to begging or asking or pleading based upon a particular lack or a particular need. And in the context of the passage we just read, you know, what do all people universally need or lack? Right? Christ, his salvation, the gospel, right? forgiveness of sins. And so the church is to earnestly pray for that. Second, prayers. Right? This highlights the fact that we don't just present our requests to meet our need to just anybody, right? But we come to God himself. And so when we come to God and approach his throne of grace, we're to come with an attitude and a spirit of humility and reverence, right? So that's what it means by prayers. Third, intercessions. And this means to speak on behalf of someone else. And just as Christ, uh, as our great high priest and the Holy Spirit, who helps us in our weakness, are said to be interceding for us in the same way we're to draw near to the Father in prayer, actively and intimately advocating for the salvation of all men. And finally, thanksgivings, right? And as we reflect on his past responsiveness to our petitions, but also as we express confidence in anticipation of God's future response, prayer should always occur in the context of thanksgiving to God, right? So supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, right? And to summarize, we're to pray urgently for all people, understanding their great need for salvation, which is supplications, identifying with and pleading on behalf of all men everywhere, which is intercessions, and we're to do that with reverence and humility before God, prayers, and to do so with thanksgiving in our hearts. And that's the kind of prayer that the church needs to prioritize. And not just supplications, but also intercessions, not just prayers, but also thanksgivings. So moving on, we see <clears throat> for whom we are to pray, right? who we are to pray for. And in verse 2a, it says, for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. And here we come to a key repeated word, which is repeated five times in six verses. This word is all, right? And the question is, what is meant by all in this particular context? And it's important to really understand it in its proper context in order to reach the correct interpretation uh, of our passage for tonight. And let me give you a couple examples to illustrate this, right? The other day, um, I went to Chipotle uh, to give Becky a much needed break uh, from cooking. And as I went to the counter, the person on the other side said, you know, what would you like in your burrito bowl, which is what I ordered? Uh, what kind of salsa would you like? Any beans or rice? Would you like any cheese, lettuce, sour cream? To which I responded, I'll take all of it, right? I'll take all of it. Now, he didn't take and pick up the entire container 
of salsa and dump it into the burrito, right? He didn't grab the container of rice and just pour the whole thing into my bowl. And it's because he understood what I meant by all, right? That I wanted all the different types of items in my bowl. You know, what if I told my sons to eat all the food on their plate before having dessert? And say that one of them, Isaiah, nibbled on the chicken. He took a couple bites of the rice, licked the vegetable, and said, there, I ate all my food, just like you asked. Can I now have my ice cream? Would he have obeyed? No, right? Clearly, when I asked them to eat all the food on their plate, I meant for them to finish eating their dinner before having any dessert. And so we know, not only from the examples I just gave, but also from our own life experiences, that context matters. But it's especially important when it comes to interpreting scripture. Because the difference is much more than what goes inside a chipotle burrito bowl or how much food is left on the dinner plate. But as we'll come to see in our particular passage, how we interpret this one word, all, makes the difference between true saving gospel and false heresy. And to help us understand what Paul meant by all people for whom we are to pray, we come to the next clause. Right? It says, for kings and all who are in high positions. Here, the Apostle Paul gives us a specific example of a subgroup of all people for whom the church is to pray. Right? We see from the context that he's not talking about prayer for every single individual, but for all types and categories of people. And in particular, those who are in positions of civil or government authorities for kings and all who are in high positions. And what this meant for church, for the church in Ephesus, as those living in Asia Minor in the first century, was that they were to pray for their king. This would have been a clear reference to Nero, who was the emperor of Rome at that time, and who was notorious for not only persecuting the church, but also murdering Christians. And what this means for us today is that we are to pray for our leaders in government, including currently our President Trump and whoever becomes our newly elected president. No matter what you think of him, not because you like him or respect him or agree with him, but because our sovereign God has elected him to be the 46th president of the United States, to be his chosen instrument for his sovereign and divine purpose. Right, Daniel 2.21, which I listed there, says he changes times and seasons. He, God, removes kings and sets up kings. Romans 13.1, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, it's important to notice that Paul doesn't give any condition or exception regarding the person's character, his personality, or political view. Simply that we're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And as a church, we need to be regularly praying 
with this biblical gospel-centered perspective of those who serve in political offices and not to be swayed or ruled by our flesh. You know, before we click submit on our next social media post, you know, I would ask you to pause and think, you know, have you prayed in this manner? But for what purpose are we to pray for those who are kings and in positions of high authority? It says, verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. As we continue reading in this verse, we're told specifically why we are to pray for those in positions of civil authority. It's because of their direct influence that they have on our ability and opportunity to live out the faith. And hopefully this is not something I need to convince us of. You know, we've all witnessed over the last several months how government ordinances restricting and limiting gathering for worship due to COVID-19 have significantly impacted churches around the world, including ours, especially in the mission to proclaim and live out the gospel. And some churches in our area of the country, including Grace Community Church, have been heavily fined for going against government mandate. And the Apostle Paul here stipulates what direction such prayer ought to take. And as we pay close attention to his argument, the real concern is for the prayer that supports the church's universal mission to the world. It says peaceful and quiet life. And in the original language, these two words refers to the internal attitude of the heart, which is peaceful, and the external circumstances, which is quiet. And at first glance, it seems that Paul is calling the church to pray for ease from pressures and hassles of a hostile and turbulent society. But that's not what we're to pray for. He's not exhorting the church to pray for a safe or comfortable or sheltered life. Instead, we're to pray for freedom from turmoil, both within and without, that threaten to thwart the ministry of the church. We're to pray for freedom from turmoil that threaten to thwart the ministry of the church. We're to pray against fear and anxiety in our own hearts, whether it's created by COVID or by Christian persecution. And we're to pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel, as we saw in our cross-reference passage from Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. We're also to pray for an ideal set of social circumstances in which Christians might give unhindered expression to their faith in holy and respectable living. And we see this in the very next phrase. It says, godly and dignified. Specifically, godly in the sight of God and dignified before all men. And this is to encompass all of life. Right? Emphasized by the next phrase, in every way. This speaks to our integrity before God and to our Christian testimony to an unbelieving world. It's about gospel living. 
the transforming work of the gospel in our lives that is reflected in the unity and holiness of the church. And how significant is that in our day and age as it was back then? So much time and energy is being spent by those who say they are Christians debating and arguing against one another, being swept up in worldly agendas and speculations when we should be focusing on our testimony. We've heard this phrase a few times now, that the church is the gospel made visible. It's based off the title of a book by Dr. Mark Dever. And in it, he writes this, the church is to be the appearance of the gospel. It is what the gospel looks like when played out in people's lives. Take away the church and you take away the visible manifestation of the gospel in the world. Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible, end quote. In light of the recent elections, it's important for us to understand what these verses are really saying. The reason the church is called to pray for civil authorities is not for any political agenda, to bring about social or economic reform, or to promote environmental or foreign policy. Rather, as believers who serve the sovereign king and Lord of all, we are to pray for those who serve in government for a gospel agenda and with a missions mindset that the church might fulfill its calling to boldly proclaim and live out the truth. In particular, the church is to pray that the gospel, as it transforms not just part of our lives, but our entire lives from inside out, would be put on full display as we walk circumspectly in the world, godly and dignified. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, We're to do this without complaining or disputing that we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, a twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. As we see from our text, this is God's primary concern, and it should be ours as well. If Christ is truly Lord and King of this church, then our prayer and desire should reflect his mission for the church, which was never about making America great again, or about building back better. His agenda was always about making Christ known and building Christ's kingdom. And if Christ is truly Lord and King, And if his word is our highest authority, then your political views, my personal opinions of those who lead this nation, whether it's Trump or it's Biden, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, what God desires, as revealed in his unchanging word, trumps what we think. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And as Christians, what God desires should govern every major and minor decision we make in life, including how we voted in the elections, but especially how we as a church are called to pray. Not for our will to be done, but for thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we come to the next section, we see what God's expressed desire and will is. And this is the grounds for evangelistic prayer. And this is the meat of the sandwich, right? Found in verses three through seven. This section is really what should drive our prayer. If you look at the passage, right, the application or the imperative is found in verses one through two, and again in verse eight. But the motivation is here in verses three through seven. And if we miss the meat of the sandwich, the buns are simply empty, external, self-righteous works. And I would propose to you that the weakness of our evangelistic zeal and prayer in our lives and in the church is tied to and explained by our lack of knowledge, appreciation, and application of this truth. You know, what's the real reason that you and I don't pray as we should, according to his word? Is it because we don't have enough prayer meetings or short-term missions trips or evangelism outreach nights? Does the church need to designate the second Sunday of every month as missions week? Right? No. It's because we don't apprehend, appreciate, or apply this gospel truth found here in verses 3 through 7. And I would say to all of us as a church, and I include myself in this, that we need to repent of this for growing familiar and apathetic to the gospel truth. And we need to ask the Lord to give us his heart for the lost. You know, Pastor Ricardo shared with us a few weeks ago about Paul's heart for missions. And if you recall his first point from his sermon, that the Apostle Paul and Christ Jesus himself, they were burdened and broken over the depravity of this world. They were not driven by emotion, but by what? They were driven by the truth of the gospel. So then why should we pray for all people? You know, what is the grounds for evangelistic prayer? First, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Pastor Mark touched upon this this past Sunday when he shared that one of the characteristics of a good servant of Christ Jesus is that he or she is pleasing to the Lord. And if we as a church want to be pleasing to the Lord, we need to be committed to evangelistic prayer in our lives. For such prayer glorifies our saving God. Or we can say it this way. Evangelistic prayer for all people is God's good and acceptable and perfect reason it is good and pleasing to God is because it is consistent with his desire 
which we read about in verse four, right? He writes, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? Here we see very explicitly the heart and desire of God to save all people. Namely, as we talked about earlier, people of various groups and backgrounds, including kings and all who are in high positions, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, people of every tribe, language, and nations. That's what it means by all people whom God desires to save. And that's what it means by all people for whom Christians are to pray in verse 1. And that has been God's purpose and plan from the very beginning. Contrary to popular opinion and to the teachings of the false teachers that had come into the church in Ephesus, the Old Testament does not teach an exclusive redemptive plan. It was not God's plan of redemption in the Old Testament to give his message of salvation exclusively to the Jewish people. Instead, the Old Testament highlights a common human condition, which is sin, and God's original and ongoing concern for all humanity. The Israelites' mission was always to actively spread the gospel, the good news of the promised Messiah to the Gentiles. And it was God's intent all along to extend his blessing of redemption to all people. Genesis 12.3, I'll read, says this, I will bless those who bless you, God speaking to Abraham, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, this is part of the Abrahamic covenant, this universal promise of salvation that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah 49, 6 through 7 says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And we see the same idea expressed in some of the exegesis or uh, cross-reference passages you looked at this week, right? Including Psalm 67 and 1 Kings chapter 8. And again, all families and all people did not mean that every person on the earth would universally believe in Christ and be saved. But that every ethnic group would receive this blessing of God's grace and his invitation to joyfully participate in worshiping and serving him. And when we come to the book of Revelation, right, the final chapter, the story of redemption, we see the fulfillment of God's mission and plan of salvation when people of every tribe and language and nation, ransomed by the blood of Christ, join and worship around his throne. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so it is true from the testimony of his word that our saving God desires all people to be saved. And that happens how? Well, the second part of verse 4 says, by coming to the knowledge of the truth. Salvation comes through knowing and responding in faith to the truth. And that's the truth of the gospel. And this is not just a mental knowledge that here Paul is talking about, but but a real acknowledgement, right? Acknowledgement and recognition of the truth. And specifically, as we see in the following verses, it's the truth about God, about ourselves as men, and about Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. We read, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Right here we see another key or repeated word. The word is one, right? And in the original language, it means one, not two, not a few, not many, not more than one. God is the one and only God. Christ is the one and only mediator. There is no other. You know, at the same time that this truth is inclusive in the sense that salvation is universally available for all people everywhere, it is also exclusive, right? There is only one God and one mediator in whom salvation is found. And this truth of the gospel that God calls all people to believe by faith is the grounds for evangelistic prayer and for the church's global mission. Its message starts with there is one God. And especially in the pluralistic society in which we live, there are many people who believe that Christianity is true, but that there are other religions that may also be right, right? We meet many of them at our workplaces or on campus, but the truth of the Bible is that Christianity is incompatible with any other religion, for there are not many gods, but one true God, according to passages like Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Isaiah 45, 5, Romans 3, 29 through 30. And as the only God, he's the God of all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. And he desires, deserves, and demands exclusive, wholehearted worship from people everywhere. And because there is one God of all, who desires to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is the reason the church is called to pray for the salvation of all men, and in particular, those who serve in positions of authority, and to take the gospel to all nations. But not only is there one God, but there is one mediator between God and men, right? And the word mediator, it's actually a legal term, and it means one who intervenes or acts as an intermediary between two parties who are at odds with a view to reconcile them, and in this case, between God and men. And it begs the question, why is mediation necessary? 
Well, it assumes that there is a conflict due to our sin that cannot be resolved between God and men. And therefore, someone has to step in between. And between man and man, there are many who can act as third-party mediators to promote reconciliation, settlement, or compromise. And we see this all the time in a world filled with conflict between business partners, spouses, even church members where mediation is necessary. But between God and men, there is only one who fulfills the necessary requirements to serve as mediator. And that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We see that Christ's role as mediator between God and men is strictly unique to him. No one else in human history qualifies and is based upon his perfect person and his perfect work, both of which are highlighted in verses five and six. And in order to adequately represent us to God, Christ had to be at the same time divine and human. We see Christ's humanity emphasized at the end of verse five. It says the man Christ Jesus while his deity is assumed or implied. In his incarnation, Christ, who was fully and eternally God, took on human flesh so that he might serve as our mediator. And we see in the next verse how Christ served as mediator. Verse 6, by giving himself as a ransom for all, referring to his perfect work on the cross. Not only offering his very own life, as a sacrifice for sin, but also as a substitute for sinners. Now the phrase ransom for all, it's an interesting one. Everyone in the world will be saved. Right? That's a false doctrine called universalism that is taught in some churches and goes against the clear teaching of scripture. They would deny the existence of hell, teach that God is loving, merciful, at the expense of his justice and holiness, and that his sacrificial substitutionary ransom on the cross was applied to every single person to have ever lived. Obviously, scripture does not affirm this. The phrase ransom for all also does not contradict what Jesus taught of himself when he said in Matthew 20, 28, also Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which is another key cross-reference that hopefully some of you identified. If we rightly divide God's word, understanding its context, and specifically how the word all is used in this passage, we come to see what the Apostle Paul is really arguing for. Can I get the next slide? Here's the authorial intent. And I tried to be as succinct as possible, but you can see I failed. But hopefully you guys will appreciate um, every part of it. The authorial tent is this. The church is to pray for the salvation of all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Because it is the good and pleasing desire of the one true God to save those of every tribe and language and people, nation, through his son, Jesus Christ, 
who is the one and only mediator between God and men, having died for all people, both Jews and Gentiles, that those who place their trust in him alone might be saved through him. To wrap up this section on the grounds for evangelistic prayer, we see that this is the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 6, this is the gospel testimony that Christ died as a ransom for all, and he proved it when he came and revealed himself by witness at the right time. And this is the message that the Apostle Paul was divinely commissioned to proclaim, the great or gospel commission, which we read about in verse 7. It says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The Apostle Paul clearly understood his divinely appointed role as preacher. Simply, uh, it means one who proclaims a message, an apostle, and teacher of the true faith. And in keeping with God's desire to save all types of people, Paul recognized that his target audience was not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Now, do you remember at what point in his life the Apostle Paul received this calling? Well, if we go to Acts chapter 9 and 22, also Galatians chapter 2, we see that Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road also represented his calling to serve as a missionary to the nations. The Lord made it clear when Paul was converted that he was a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's Acts 9.15. To bring God's saving message to the ends of the earth. And as we saw earlier, God's eternal plan was to provide salvation for all people. It was never intended to be reserved or restricted to one special group, that is the Jews. The salvation of the Gentiles in Christ was not plan B, but the fulfillment of what God promised to do when he pledged to save many nations through Abraham. And this is the truth that the Apostle Paul was called to proclaim and teach in the face of opposition by false teachers who were spreading lies within the church to challenge Paul's authority and the true gospel with which he had been entrusted. In light of Paul's commission as an ambassador of the gospel, I want us all to consider one point of application before we move to our third and final portion of the passage. Right, Like the Apostle Paul, we are all given a divine calling. The moment we are saved into the church, which is the body of Christ and the household of God. We may not have realized it at the time of our conversion, but that is the testimony of Scripture. Now, none of us have been appointed to be an apostle like Paul. And not many of us will enroll in seminary to be formally trained to become a pastor to preach and teach the word, but the calling to participate in God's mission for the church, to go under his supreme authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching others to obey all that Christ has commanded, 
This calling is granted to every one of us who belong to his church. Together, we are to carry out this great commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to take the truth of the gospel and proclaim it wherever we are and wherever we go, from the moment we are saved until the day he calls us home. As Pastor Ricardo reminded us, this is not a special calling given to quote-unquote missionaries or to those who are more mature in the faith. Missions is the heart of God. It is the calling of the church, and it is to start with prayer. Which brings us to our final verse, verse 8. We're back to the call to evangelistic prayer. Here the Apostle Paul completes the sandwich. His charge to Timothy regarding the priority of prayer and worship comes full circle. Previously in verses 1 through 2, the emphasis was on what kinds of prayer, supplication, prayer, intercession, thanksgiving. It was on who we ought to pray for, all kinds of people, and particularly those who have been appointed to positions of civil authority. The reason for such prayer that the church would be enabled to proclaim and live out the gospel. But now the emphasis here in verse 8 is on who should lead in prayer. Who should lead in prayer, which still falls under Christ's concern over how we worship. He writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Very quickly, we see several conditions given. First, it should be the men who lead in public worship through prayer. Right? This is God's high calling for the men in the church. And by men, we're talking about men in the male sense, not in the generic sense. Paul highlights the specific and important role that women are to have in the church starting in verse 9. But it is to be a common practice that when the church gathers together for worship, and the phrase there, in every place, always refers in Paul's epistles to the assembly of the church. It is to be the men who lead in prayer on behalf of the lost. There's a second condition. Right? It should be men who lift holy hands. And the point that the Apostle Paul is making here is not that when we pray, we got to ha- have our hands up in the air. The point is that the one who prays must have holy hands. The concern is not over the posture of our body, but over the purity of our hearts. For cross-reference, we can point to passages like Psalm 24, 3-4, uh, 1 Peter 3:12, Proverbs 15:29, which talk about God hearing the prayers of the righteous. And to emphasize the importance of holiness, the Apostle Paul writes that we are to pray without anger or quarreling. Again, it's not just the outward appearance that God is concerned about, but the internal attitude of the heart. It is those men whose lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel who are to lead the church in prayer for the salvation of all people. So our final slide for tonight, as we covered extensively the first eight verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Some points of application to close our time. Are our lives characterized by holiness? Right? This is especially important for those who serve in leadership. 
But as we learn from our passage, God's desire is for the church to be godly and dignified, to serve as a witness to the watching world. Are our lives characterized by holiness? Secondly, are our prayer lives characterized by evangelistic zeal for the lost? Right? Does, the group, does the truth of the and drive us to pray for the salvation of all people? Right? As I mentioned earlier, we don't need more outreach events or short-term mission trips. What we really need is Christ and his word to really take a hold of our hearts. And, you know, brothers and sisters, in the midst of studying this passage, I had to repent, you know, of letting the concerns of my life, the busyness of ministry, family, work, really compete with God's heart for the lost. You know, his primary concern for the church. You know, and God, by his grace, uh, granted an opportunity yesterday for evangelism. You know, as a patient of mine came in um, to the office requesting uh, a mental health referral. And as I was talking to her, she shared that uh, she was having struggles in her relationship with her adult son. And that she uh, wanted to talk to somebody who can provide some therapy and some counseling. And I was thankful that, you know, in studying this passage, yeah, the Lord convicted me of my need to grow in my heart for the loss and to um, be bold, more bold in my witness for Christ at work. And so, you know, I was able uh, by his grace to share Christ in his word to her, uh, that God desired for her more than reconciliation with her son that she be reconciled to him as God. And I was able to walk her through the gospel. And she emailed me later that night, telling me that she had read through Luke 15, which I had pointed her to and encouraged her to consider the parable of the prodigal son. And that she um, wanted and hoped to come to our church soon. She lives in Sunnyvale, not far from where our church is. And the only thing I wish I had at that time, which I didn't, was one of the church business cards that uh, we've told you all about, you know, that has the gospel tract on it. I wish I could have sent her home with that. And so I would, you know, tell you guys, don't make the same mistake I did. And this Sunday, if you could, you know, find either Cindy Chu or Teddy Yu and get some of these gospel tracts and have them ready, have them on hand, because you never know what opportunities the Lord will bring your way. You know, if we're um, in the spirit of, of this passage and having the heart for the lost, as the Apostle Paul in Christ, God himself had. And I would ask you guys, if you would, just to pray for Miss Kim. Uh, she's the lady that I spoke with yesterday. Uh, pray for her salvation. You know, and also pray for an opportunity that you guys would have, you know, in the coming days and weeks to share Christ with someone, whether it's our neighbor, uh, whether it's, you know, a family member, uh, whether it's the car mechanic, whoever it is, um, pray for that opportunity and trust the Lord to give you the boldness to 
to proclaim him. And if there is anyone listening tonight, you know, who does not know this great salvation that we talked about, you know, know that God desires for you to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he has provided the way to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and men. You know, simply humble yourself. Acknowledge that you have not lived in a manner that is good and pleasing to him. That you are deserving of his righteous and holy judgment. Repent from your sin and turn to Christ. Look to him by faith who lived and died and rose again, that you might have eternal life in him. And God is merciful and able to save if you would only surrender and submit your life to following him. Finally, are we as a church committed to gospel worship according to his word? And are we committed to his mission to save all people? Right? May evangelistic prayer be a priority in the worship and the life of our church. And not just during this election season, but until Christ comes again, when every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Well, will you pray with me and uh, as we close our time for tonight? Lord God, thank you for your word to us found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is such a rich and deep text. Uh, It is a text that expresses your heart for the lost. And we only tonight were able to scratch the surface of it. But Lord, um, in light of everything we heard from your word tonight, would you help us as a church uh, to treasure Christ, to treasure your word to treasure the gospel and to have your heart for the lost, Lord, that you might use us as weak and broken and frail vessels, instruments in your hand to fulfill your will, which is to see all people saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, would you do a mighty work in our hearts and in our church as we desire to see your will be done and your kingdom come, Lord, and that you would enable us by faith to live out and proclaim your truth to a world that so desperately needs to see and to hear it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ted, for shepherding our hearts and bringing us to 1 Timothy 2 and walking us through the exposition of God's word there to see God's heart for not merely just salvation, but for us to see and encounter the glory of God and to have that same desire um, for evangelism and God be honored. Just want to welcome everybody again to the our Logos Bible study. Um, so this is our... Um, regular midweek Bible study. And 
just if you're new to our church or if you're new to um, Logos or just visiting, um, again, welcome. And if you'd like to know more or hear more about the gospel that Ted referred to, um, please reach out to myself or my wife, Naomi. Uh, we'd be happy to give you more information or um, just talk with you further. And um, just want to make ourselves available for you. Uh, just wanted to remind everybody again that um, we have Sunday worship as well coming up um, on Sunday. So um, let's continue to pray, not only for the, the continued time together, but especially in light of the message that Ted gave us, that we would do so with a heart and an attitude um, that reflects God's heart, um, as we just saw in 1 Timothy 2. Um, and then... Uh, for Logos, our upcoming schedule is next week is going to be a sharing and prayer time. So hopefully this upcoming week will not just only be a, a wonderful time of reflection and meditation upon what we just heard, but then also a time where we can share how we've applied or pursued understanding these things. Um, and then our next large group will be um, in on November 19th. So if you're not in a group, or, um, or if you have questions about Logos, please feel free to reach out to JC, Edwin, or myself. Um, and then before I close in prayer, I want to just share a little, um, just a little note um, that, uh, for our family uh, or our church family. Um, so Tim Liu um, asked me to share with um, our church is that um, for him and Tracy, they've had uh, members of their family um, pass away um, unexpectedly over the last couple of days. So um, Tim's brother passed away. The, um, uh, uh, older brother passed away just today, I believe. And then Tracy's grandfather um, also passed away a couple of days ago as well. Um, so please keep them both in your prayers. Um, it's a wonderful, it's, it's hard and it's challenging. Um, um, they're just in a time of grieving and um, just dealing with end-of-life issues and um, just a time to minister to their extended family. So let's continue to pray for them. Um, that's also a reminder for us to not only pray for them, but to remember, you know, our purpose here in life. So Tim had shared as well that his brother was a believer, so we're thankful for that. Um, but he also leaves behind a wife. And then Tracy's grandfather was not a believer. So again, you know, this. We want to keep in prayer for them and their family um, and just come alongside them. So I know that's heavy news, but just wanted to hope, um, just share that with you so that we can come, come together as a church family for them. Um, let me close, uh, um, just spend a little bit of time again in prayer for not only Tim and Tracy, but then yes, uh, for our Logos Bible study. So let's pray. Dear Father God, we do thank you that we can come to you because of the mediation of Jesus Christ. We pray first for Tim and Tracy, just our dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we pray for Tim's brother passing away. We know that it was unexpected. Just starting with an ache that doesn't feel well going to the hospital and um, he passes away. It's a reminder that all of our lives, they're just um, a breath in the wind yet they are all held in your sovereign purposes, God. And we can thank you that in his case, he was a professing believer. And how wonderful and how joyous is that, that that can be a celebration to pass from this life to the next, to be in your presence and to know and enjoy you forever. 
And yet, combined with that, we were reminded of how serious this life is as well, just hearing of Tracy's grandfather passing away, an unbeliever, and yet to know the consequences of that, that there are no second tries, there's no redos, but that all are to come before your throne in judgment, God, and you will give perfect judgment. And that those who die apart from Christ, there is no way but to face your wrath against their sin forever. We grieve over that. We grieve um, not only for the loss of that, those family relationships, but we grieve in particular for um, Tracy's grandfather passing away um, as an unbeliever. May you comfort Tim and Tracy during this time, strengthen them um, for the road ahead. This is a time where they're um, just ministering to their extended family, just even themselves being in time of, um, of mourning and grieving. And especially being on both sides in such quick succession, God, you've called them to this purpose, to, to be a light and to be a testimony to their family. And I pray that they would be strength, that they would be encouraged and emboldened, knowing, knowing that this is uh, just a calling that you've given to them at this time. May they cling to your word. May we as their church family come alongside them to encourage them and to, um, and to keep them in our prayers. We thank you that in all these things, we can be reminded that Christ is sovereign and that these things don't happen by accident. And so may we give thanks to you, God, even in the midst of these things of how weak we are, how frail we are, that your strength is made perfect. And what a wonderful reminder it is for us as our church that this life that we live, no matter how tumultuous it may be all around us or even within our own hearts as we struggle with sin or pursue sanctification, that there is a purpose that you've given to us is to be a light of the gospel to the world around us. It is not that we have no troubles, but that in the midst of them, we can proclaim your good news, that Christ came to save sinners. May that be our growing heart's desire, and may we be committed to that. Just as Ted mentioned, we thank you for the opportunities we do have to evangelize and to proclaim the gospel to those around them. And so we pray for Miss Kim, um, that she would indeed heed the call of the gospel to be saved and that she would be connected to you, God, um, through the local church and be connected to your word and to be your disciple and your slave and honor you. We thank you that we are reminded that as vast and as um, serious is our sin against you, God, that we deserve the fullness of your divine wrath against us, that that, that, that that wrath that you have can be satisfied by the blood of Christ, that it can be propitiated, and that we can enjoy reconciliation to, the, to our God, that we can call him Father, that in knowing and seeing your holy word, we can see our sin revealed and brought to light, that that penalty and power and presence of sin we know for its ugliness, that it finds its solution and we find our freedom in Christ. May we remember that that, <clears throat> that, that is our struggle. And that is our call, the calling that you've given to us is to live as testimonies of Christ, to be slaves of Christ here on earth so that others may be pointed to the gospel message. May that be our joy and our assurance that through grace, um, God's grace, um, we can have um, joy and we can have security. 
And we pray, especially in light of this, um, just this time in our nation for the leaders and the politicians as well. We pray for their salvation, but we also pray for their governance. They will be held accountable to your awesome and final authority, God. We pray that they would all indeed come to know you savingly, that they would repent. We pray specifically for Mr. Trump, Mr. Pence, Mr. Biden, Ms. Harris, Speaker Pelosi, even Governor Newsom. All of these individuals, they possess power and authority. And no matter where they are, you have placed them there, God. And we pray that they would do so faithful to you, but they, they need to come to a saving relationship with you. Uh, we, need, uh, we pray that they would indeed uh, be brought to repentance, God. Uh, but we also pray that um, the way that they govern um, would allow for that expression, that free expression of um, Christian testimony, a witness as well. We pray for your mercy in their governance. Um, and all those things we entrust to your care, God. Thank you again, God, that in all these things, that you are our God and that you are our God of grace. May we be comforted by that. May we be encouraged. May we remember how great is the salvation that you've given to us, that Jesus continues to be our intercessor intercessor, and that perfect mediator so that we can have this relationship with you. And may we, out of love and thanksgiving to you, um, pursue faithfulness to this great calling that you've given to us here on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.